You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where it's surprising how many songs I've had about circles on the show, and yet not once have I had to use a Belinda Carlisle song. Once again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Engel, and my job on the show, as it has been for well over three years now, is covering the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, while all the while putting a special emphasis on my two favorite characters in comicdom, Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. Right now, we're coming to kind of a conclusion in the Kyle Rayner saga, specifically with Judd Winnick, as we're going to be covering Green Lantern number 164 today. It's the last part of Judd Winnick's run in the book, and Judd Winnick will be moving over to the book that we're also covering today, Green Arrow number 25. Ben Rabb, who's writing the Green Arrow book for some reason, is going to be coming over to Green Lantern after this, and there's going to be a switch up in the, uh, in the artist as well as the writers, and... It's kind of interesting. But of course, all of this comes after what we're covering today, which is the Black Circle storyline. Yes, if you've followed us for the past couple of episodes, you found out that Green Arrow and Green Lantern, Oliver Queen and Kyle Rayner specifically, don't seem to be getting along. However, they are both having to take down an alien drug ring, and they're being helped by the son of former Green Lantern, Abin Sur. Well... Guess what? Things happen that you should have expected to happen in the book, and Abinsur's son really isn't all that nice of a guy. But it's an interesting story nonetheless, and uh, an interesting end to Judd Winnick's run on the Green Lantern book. Plus, there's some really great art by Charlie Adler, who does a lot of his characters to look like characters out of The Walking Dead, which isn't a bad thing. Plus, it's been a couple of episodes since I've read some emails, so I'm ready to break open the Just One of the Guys email bag and see what kind of missives have been delivered my way. But all of that, plus some promos, will be coming up after this little break, and then we'll get into our coverage of the first book, Green Arrow number 25. Oh, yeah, 
Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hardworking people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of thought. This looks like a job for Superman. Gentlemen, you're up. <laughs> Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? And we are back. And what you just heard there was a promo for an excellent, excellent show that you should all be listening to. After a hiatus of, oh, nearly half a year, Dave is back. And he's doing his Daredevil podcast, and it's more timely than ever, especially with the new Daredevil show out on Netflix. Dave does an excellent job on his show, and I'm not only promoting his show because he was kind enough to send me a digital copy of Mark Wade's uh, Daredevil number 1 from 2011, not only because of that, but also because Dave does an amazing, amazing show. If you are in any way a fan of Daredevil, if you're any way a fan of good podcast, I recommend strongly that you go check out Dave's show. It's always entertaining. Dave's funny. He's clever. He knows his stuff. And he's really, really making me enjoy the Daredevil books. And that's surprising because I'm not really all that much of a Marvel fan and not that big of a Frank Miller fan either. And Frank Miller's stuff is usually considered the... uh the penultimate Daredevil stuff, but he's getting me interested in all aspects of it, and it just shows what a great host he is. So definitely go check out Dave's Daredevil podcast. But I'm definitely going to check out, Segway School pays off again, the emails from you wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and once again, we've got a great email from my longtime listener and good friend to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. He writes in with the title of his email, Brainwave Jr., and he says, Sean, I was able to catch up on a few issues, and I have some comments on Greenlander number 150. He thought if this was a good issue and probably Winnick's best date. The artwork by Eaglesham is amazing and really makes this issue top-notch. 
I really enjoyed the analysis of this issue with yourself and Emily Middleton. Well, that's that's all on Emily. She brought the uh, goods to that one. I found it interesting that Winnick changed Kyle into half-Latino. Winnick definitely has no problems changing things up to suit his own style in the run. The story about his dad was good, but the ending of The Guardian Kids had me kind of scratching my head. That's a lot of dirty diapers Ganthan is going to have to change. Well, uh, he can just magic them away the way he does with everything else. Like that uh, story he did a couple of issues back on the planet with the Roxe or whatever. Yeah, just just go with that. I picked up the Green Lantern Legacy so I could find out how O was recreated, and it was definitely not as epic as I thought it was going to be. As much credit as I give to Eagle Sham, the new costume at the end is terrible. What's with the belt buckle around Kyle's neck? Yeah, yeah, you're you're probably in the same camp with uh with my good friend Thomas DJ. He's not a fan of the costume. He says I definitely vote that Eagle Sham draws the best Jenny so far. So good issue. Moving on to Green Lantern 151, this was a pretty fun issue, and Eagle Jam's art is fantastic as usual. The comedy was pretty good, too, especially on page 6, with the cop asking Kyle for his autograph for his niece, Anthony, his niece, Anthony, sorry. I agree, Terry is drawn much younger in this issue, and he definitely would not be allowed into a dance club looking this young. There was a nice cliffhanger ending with Jenny in the fetal position in the alley, a good issue. Then on to Green Lantern number 152, this one was a weak issue. It's funny that you checked everything to find out what this was part two of. This ties into the previous issues, so they were probably making a mistake not calling Green Lantern 151 part one. Which, yeah, I think this was, it was a two-part issue, but they only called this one part the part two, so uh, whatever. On page 12, I was really confused when Alan Scott says, The least you can do for a blue-haired old lady like me, what is he talking about? I don't even know, and I don't have the comic in front of me, so I can't tell you. He asked, who's the blue-haired old lady? And then he says, ugh, the villain is really Brainwave Jr.? I'm not a fan of mind control, super weak power, so when you, f- when you found out it was Brainwave Jr., I was totally bummed out. It's funny that you found your Sharpie of TZOT on, or the Tazad on page 21. Yeah, that, that was one of the onomatopoeias that I found in there. Sorry, I had to mute for a cough. It's one of the onomatopoeias I found on the page that looked really off. So it was it was embarrassing. It, uh, again, kind of nitpicky, but yeah, it didn't look good in the issue. Uh, he goes on to Green Lantern 153, and he says this was a decent issue. The interaction through the class reunion was great throughout, and the cliffhanger ending was good with Kyle finding out something else has happened to Terry. It kind of reminded me of the phone call that Donna received earlier in the series. Yeah, I didn't really uh, play that out, but that was another another time where a tragic event happened at uh, Kyle Rayner's mom's house. So, yeah, the, the last time that uh, Donna found out about her husband and her husband and uh, her son being injured in the car crash was in a Green Lantern book that uh, occurred uh, over at Mara's house. So, interesting catch there. Nice, nice one there, Scott. Uh, she does say, wow, he does comment on Kyle's mom being very much a MILF in this issue, and she says the plastic surgery has done wonders. At the end, he finishes up saying, thanks, Sean. The weather in Vancouver has been great, and we didn't have much of a winter here. Anything east of the Rocky Mountains gets the worst of the Canadian winters, so we're very sheltered here from the cold. I think that's why everyone moves here and keeps the housing prices completely out of touch with the reality. Well, Thank goodness I live in Oklahoma, where Oklahoma housing prices are just ridiculously low. I mean, 
I, my wife watches these shows like Flip This House and all that stuff on Home and Garden TV, and we see these little houses that are barely over a thousand square feet going for five hundred thousand dollars, and I just don't get that. But this isn't a Home and Garden show; it's a Green Lantern show. But thank you, Scott, for writing in. I've got another letter from Scott, but I'm going to skip that for right now and move on to this uh, letter that I've got from a person called Bradley Man uh, 612 uh, Bradley Man just writes a little short email saying, I'm starting with episode one. Oh, good Lord. Well, t- trust me, it-, it gets better over time. So just just keep plugging along and it'll actually get good eventually. And by good, I mean average. He says, starting with episode one, I'm a Kyle Fran who, who fought the heat back in the day. Guy I like to hate, but in a way which makes great comics. I'll write again when I catch up, Bradley Man. Bradley Man, thank you very much for being willing to start out the series at episode one. I know I have not had a chance to go back and listen to that to see how far I progressed, whether I'm more, whether I've lost some of the vocal text, whether I've come more accustomed to talking on my own through the uh, through the mic. Uh, whether I sound a little better, I've upgraded my equipment, uh, whether I've uh, been able to edit the shows a little better. Um, possibly. I hope so. If not, please let me know because, well, I guess, yes, please let me know because I'd always like to change things. But unfortunately, I'm <laughs> coming to near the ending of the show. So anything that I change will just be kind of kind of late to the game, sadly. But Bradley, thank you for picking up the beginning of the show, and thank you for listening along. I hope you eventually get to where we are now, where you can hear your email being read on the show. But that's going to knock it on the head for emails today. I've got, Like I said, I've got another one from Scott that I'll save for next time. But it is time to get into the first of our issues today, which is Green Arrow number 25. Green Arrow number 25 had a cover date of early July 2003 and a release date of May 7th of 2003. The cover price was 250 US and 425 Canada and the title was Know Thy Enemy. The writer was Ben Rabe or Rob Rabe whatever. Char- artist was Charlie Adler, letter Jack Morelli, colorist Tatiana Wood, separations were by Heroic J- Age, the assistant editor was Morgan Dantonville and the editor was Bob Shrek. Having captured one of the escaping members of the Black Circle, Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow, prepares to do a little interrogation with his fists. Luckily for both Ollie's fists and the alien's face, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner steps in and takes over the questioning. As Green Arrow rants about he knows how best to get a perp to talk, Green Lantern chews him away into the hallway where the Emerald Archer meets up with Amon Sur, intergalactic space cop. Amon agrees with Ollie's methods, saying that violence is the only thing that the Black Circle understands. But Ollie says those methods probably won't be used, as Kyle is probably finding a shiny, happy way to get the criminal to talk. In the interrogation room, Kyle is using a shiny way to get the criminal to talk, if you consider the shine to be the energy coming off the Green Lantern ring that has filled Kyle in on all of the alien's personal information. Kyle mentions he could find out more, but it might be a bit more invasive. So the alien, now named Turbo Hooth, might want to offer it up willingly. Sometime later, Kyle exits the room and tells Amon his findings. A lot of info on Turval, but none on the leader of the Black Circle. He also found out about a faction of the Black Circle that had broken away to try and branch out on their own. 
Amon tells Kyle he knew about the Splinter Group, to which Kyle asks why he didn't tell him about it earlier. Amon quotes the ancient Ungaran philosopher's statement, Know thy enemy as thou knoweth thyself, and says from now on he will share all information with Green Lantern and Green Arrow. But trust-building exercises are cut short, as Ollie runs to Kyle to tell him that the remaining aliens in Star City are making a final stand against the mob forces, and the mob isn't faring too well. Fortunately, Connor Hawk and Dinah Lance, Green Arrow and Black Canary, are on the case helping take down the evil ETs. The heroes aid in taking out the remaining Black Circle grunts, but after the fighting is done, Green Lantern spies Ammon interrogating one of the survivors all Darth Vader style. Kyle tells Amon to stop, but Ammon doesn't yield, snapping the alien's neck for not revealing the name of the Black Circle's leader. Green Lantern rebukes Ammon for his actions, but before he and Green Arrow can get to the bottom of all this, a giant spacecraft appears over the skies of Star City. Then, without warning, the ship teleports Ammon aboard, something that Black Canary doesn't think is a case of abduction, and Kyle and Ollie make some attempts to slow the ship down. Sadly, neither attack works, and the Black Circle ship warps off into space. But Kyle is able to use the ring to mimic the wavelength of the teleportation beam and opens up a portal to the ship. Ready to take the fight to the source, Green Lantern and Green Arrow leap through the portal, only to emerge on a section of the ship surrounded by force fields. Green Lantern tries to ring his way out, but before he can get very far, the duo are knocked out by an intense energy blast. And, as our heroes slip into unconsciousness, the Magnet Commander of the Black Circle, Amon Sur, steps over the prone bodies and takes Kyle's Green Lantern ring for himself. Okay, yes, I have to admit, that ending really wasn't too much of a shocker, but as we've entered the last two issues of this book, or the last two issues of the storyline, it was only going to be a matter of a time before the big reveal about Amonsur had to come to life. Again, I've got the same praises and complaints I had with previous issues here. Adler's art is good, but the heroes differ from the secondary characters, Ollie and Kyle's antagonism feels forced, and... Ammon started looking really shady in parts of the book. But even with those minor criticisms, I found this to be a really fun read, and it was actually nice to see the extended Arrow family come into play in the book as well. We got glimpses of Connor in the first couple of issues, but it was nice to see them actually taking an active role in trying to defend Star City in this issue. And Green, or not Green Arrow, Black Canary's uniform, Although it does look somewhat similar to the 1980s JLI uniform, isn't quite as bad as that. Adler does a good job of the character design, and it looks really good. So kudos to him. Good work on the book. But uh, that's enough with uh, general notes. Let's go to something more specific. We'll start out, of course, as we do with the cover, which, in my opinion, is probably one of the best covers on the book. It's got, of course, Green Arrow and Green Lantern facing opposite directions, look very grim in the background, while a karate-chopping, kicking Black Canary flies through in the foreground. Everything looks really good on the cover, even Black Canary... Once again, I think 
Adler has a little problem with the distension of legs, but her pose doesn't look completely outrageous. It looks like she's throwing a, a powerful flying kick. However, she does seem to be put on the page as sort of an afterthought. Both uh, Ollie and Kyle look like they're shaded by the exploding sun that's in the background, but uh, Black Canary doesn't seem to have any of that shading, so maybe they just put her on as, you know, hey, there's going to be females in this book? I don't know. Moving into the book, page two, I'm still going to complain about the antagonism between Kyle and Ollie in the books. It does seem a bit, it does seem a bit dialed back here, but again, they've been at this for, let's say, a couple of days, if not. The antagonism should be well behind them. It seems lessened here, but it's still there, and again, it's one of those things where I don't mind my heroes having differing opinions or voicing those differing opinions, but after a while it gets cliched and boring. And I want to see them working together. We're getting a little bit of that, but not enough yet. Page 3, panel 5. You get the idea in the previous books how Ammon has, dri has dropped some sort of subtle clues that he might not be the good guy that he's supposed to be. Especially at the end of the last Green Lantern issue where he suddenly found these guys but was nowhere around when Ollie and Kyle were taking out the smugglers. This image that Adler draws on the page is very stereotypical Walking Dead image of a person being deceitful. And again, it's it's nice, it gets the point across, but it's not very subtle. This is, I think it, that they're coming to the end of the story, they kind of have to telegraph to the readers how, how wrong that the uh, heroes have been about Amon Sur. Page four, we get Kyle taking the ring off his finger and still being able to use it, uh, which was a nice callback to him having the ion powers and how he essentially gave the ring more power than it usually had. We'd seen other lanterns, specifically Hal during the early run of the Gerard Jones book, being able to manipulate the ring when it wasn't off his hand, but it took a great deal of effort on his part. Kyle has kind of manipulated things to where he... That now that he's able to use the ring, he can use it from long distances, which is kind of a neat thing that I think uh, enhances the Green Lantern's power power set as as such. But then again, on page five, we get Ammon saying that he was withholding information from Kyle and Ollie, which again leads to more suspicion of the character. It all seems to be coming to a head in this book. He was seated in earlier ones, but this one they're putting it out there on Front Street, as Trantus Magnus would say. Pages 6 and 7, uh, this is just an amazing splash page, and it's so much a precursor to what we'd see in The Walking Dead. It's kind of an overhead shot of a bunch of these cars overturned, various figures firing weapons at each other. Uh, they, we've got them down at the bottom, we've got the SWAT team with their riot shields, the uh, mafia goons with their guns. It's all incredibly amazing, and it's all very detailed, and it's, it makes me wonder what The Walking Dead would be like if it were a colored book, because this scene looks exactly as a sort of chaotic, destructive scene in The Walking Dead, just added color to it. And it'd be interesting to see 
what color would do to a Walking Dead book. There are a couple of nice Easter eggs here uh, on the light pole here. It's got uh, mentions of Kirby Street and Grell Street. Obviously, Jack Kirby and Mike Grell being artists who worked on the uh, Green Arrow book. Plus, it's got one that I can't really tell. Maybe it looks like Robinson, but I can't really be certain. But uh, at least they're playing, paying homage to Jack Kirby and Mike Grell there. Page eight, Connor comes in to uh, sort of mop up the mobs or mop up the mob goons and uh, try and take out the aliens as well. But again, we get this image of him holding the bow in a really awkward manner. He's got the string drawn above his left arm, and he's holding, he's got the arrow knocked way off center. Again, if he's a trick shooter, he could probably pull it off, and I guess that'd be the no prize explanation to it. But as an actual archery shooter or a person who shoots archery, I guess, whatever, that's the same thing. It doesn't look like it would work, so nitpickery there. Page 9, Dinah looks really good in this outfit. It's, like I said, it's somewhat reminiscent of her JLI outfit, the very tight-fitting sort of uh, unitard, but it doesn't have... It, well, it's got a bit of the collar, the sort of 80s collar that she had going on, but it's much more subdued, I guess. Uh, it, she's got a She's got some things down the side that would be reminiscent of the sort of 90s pouches. So it's an interesting amalgam of a sort of 90s feel and 80s aesthetic that meld well into the 2000s and give her a different look. You know, most people remember Black Canary from the sort of fishnets type thing. I guess this is a different way to portray her that's that's not awful, so I'll give it that. Pages 10 and 11, and this is one of the things I've commented throughout the series about what I like about the books. In in between this little story, which feels a bit forced, they're able to have Ollie and Diana, or Ollie and Dinah, have a little conversation. It's one of those sort of downtime moments that feels kind of forced in this issue, but I actually enjoy. I want to see the the main characters having to fight, but also to have real world dynamics going on. And I think they are able to bring this in somewhat seamlessly in the book. But then moving on to page 13, we get Amon doing some more shady things as he's holding up a, one of the aliens, a la Darth Vader style on the, I guess it was the Tantive four. Was that the ship that the princess Leia was fleeing from the star destroyer in the front? I think it was the Tantive four. I'm, I'm a horrible star Wars nerd, but he's holding him up there and, just snaps his neck, again, making him seem not to be the kind of person he's portrayed himself to be. It's getting laid on a little bit thick here. Page 7, this is a, a scene that's very similar to the one that Professor Allen commented on the last show. You've got these two panels at the top and the bottom of the screen with this big sort of splash page of the... Uh, alien ship showing up overhead and the first scene is of the characters being sh all the characters on the ground being shaded by the ship appearing over them and then you've got the images of Oliver Queen and Amon Sur looking up at it at the bottom panel it's it's a nice way to show sort of the transitional flow of the story without having to put a lot of panels in there and Adler also gets a good job of doing a lot of 
I guess you could call it Kirby Tech by drawing this very odd-looking spaceship. It's it's a nice panel layout here. But then moving to page 19, we get the ring getting a sort of MacGuffin device, power, whatever, as it is able to replicate the transporter signal, kind of like the way it was able to track the aliens in the first issue of the book. So just a way to further the plot along, rather than Kyle having to fly after them and bring Ollie behind in a little bubble or whatever. They just teleport themselves on there. I guess it works, but in technicality, I don't think you'll ever see this type of this type of power being used by the Green Lantern ever again. But then moving on to the end of the book, you get the reveal on page 22 of Amon Sur as the leader of the Black Circle standing over the unconscious bodies of Green Arrow and Green Lantern. Now, it was pretty telegraphed in the past couple of books, but it's it's a nice splash page and a nice reveal here. What's also interesting is we finally see the ungloved hands of Amon Sur here, and he's got little black circle tattoos on both of his on the backs of both of his hands. You wouldn't have noticed that throughout the rest of the book, and I did go back and check. All the other times he was wearing white gloves while he was dealing with Oliver and Kyle. So it's a nice little reveal that they put into the character and showing that he has this sort of symbology, this tattoo on his hands that would have obviously revealed him to be part of the Black Circle. So, A good issue, some problems with the characterization and them not being too subtle about uh, about showing the fact that Amon was going to be the big bad at the end, but overall, in general, a good story. Hopefully we'll get a good resolution in Green Lantern number 164, which we'll be covering right after these podcast promo breaks. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Or maybe... Dragon Flame! How about... Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientist and engineer spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazers! Or this? The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Team, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. 
Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes under Two True Freaks Presents Anime Freaks. Two True Freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. Okay, we are back to take a look at Green Lantern number 164, the final issue in the Judwinnick run of books on Green Lantern. This one was cover dated early July 2003 and released on May 14th of 2003 with a cover price of 225 US and 375 in Canada. The title was Sons and Fathers, Fathers and Sons, and as I said before, the writer was Judwinnick. Artist once again was Charlie, Ad- Charlie Adler. The letter was Jack Morelli. Colors were by Tatiana Wood. Separations were by Heroic Age. Assistant editor was Morgan Dontonville. And the editor was Bob Schreck. As a captive Green Lantern and Green Arrow look on, Amon Nagin. <clears throat> I mean, Rick Sur. I mean, Amon Sur gloats about how he is now the possessor of the most powerful weapon in the universe. Too bad he can't seem to get it to work. Kyle taunts Ammon, saying that he doesn't have the will to wield the ring in hopes that he will just spill the beans about his role in the Black Circle organization. Unfortunately, Ammon just walks away, leaving Green Arrow and Green Lantern to ponder their fate. Ollie says that he and Hal were in worse scrapes than this when Hal's ring was taken from him, but Kyle says that they don't need to worry. Ammon won't get the ring to work, since he is still controlling it. With that being the case, Ollie wonders why they aren't beating out there beating some alien ass, but Kyle says that he'd like to find out what they're up against before they go all tango and cash on them. Meanwhile, back at Star City, Green Arrow Connor Hawk and Black Canary Dinah Lance are busy mopping up the last aliens that were left on the planet. The duo smack the space invaders inside of the head and leave them to be picked up by DEO agent Chase. But as Connor and Dinah slip away from the scene, the two have to wonder if Green Arrow and Green Lantern will make it back alive. Back on the command ship, Ammon is being informed of the last six traitors that were captured on Earth. The Magnet Commander says that he's glad that they were able to quell this treason amongst the ranks, as well as trick the Earth heroes into helping him. Plus, he's got his father's Green Lantern ring as a bonus. Now he only has to get the information on how it works with the heroes. Seeing enough of what's been going on, Ollie has Kyle reactivate the ring remotely, creating a constructive Godzilla that proceeds to go all SOS Tokyo on the bridge. As the ring zips off his finger, Amon orders his crew to take out the Emerald Allies, but that might be a little difficult, as the duo have escaped the force field and are ready to deliver a heaping helping of consequences copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014 All Rights Reserved. The two finally start working together as Ollie heads to the bridge to stop the ship, and Kyle rings up some Amazon bikini girls, bikini girls, to take out the Black Circle henchmen. Things are going well for both parties until Kyle is lassoed by Ammon, 
kicked in the head and held with a blaster pistol against his temple. But before Amon can pull the trigger, a well-placed arrow to the forearm disables the baddie and saves Kyle's bacon. Defeated, Amon teleports away, but not before activating the self-destruct on the ship and telling the heroes that they've made a grave enemy this day. Telling Kyle that he doesn't want to blow up in another flying machine, Ollie slaps Kyle into consciousness, and the duo escape the explosion in a ring-construct bubble. Not unlike the one Hal used to make. Some time has passed, and Kyle and Ollie are having a few drinks in a Star City bar. The two comment on how they were deceived by Ammon and how sometimes the apple falls pretty far from the tree. Kyle mentions that that's not the case for Connor, and Ollie thanks him and asks about Kyle's dad. Kyle says that he's a stand-up guy, and Ollie says that Kyle ought to take some time to get to know him. Handing Ollie a present, Kyle heads out, saying that he's going to try and find Ammon Sur. Ollie thanks him and tells him to let him know that if he needs a hand, to which Kyle replies, he will. As Kyle heads out, Ollie opens the gift and finds a Chotsky lantern with a 25-cent price tag and a card attached. The bartender reads the card, saying, A 2-bit green lantern from a 2-bit green lantern. Wondering what it all means, the bartender asks if that guy was a friend of his, to which Ollie replies, Getting there. Now, this story had its ups and downs in terms of characterization and art, but with this final chapter, it pulls it all back together and gives a really strong, satisfying conclusion. Kyle and Ollie finally feel like they're a reluctant team rather than antagonistic friends by this book, and I really wish it hadn't taken this long. The story wraps up Winnick Run in what I consider to be a really great fashion, and I have to say, even though it was short, and ha- it did have some standout moments. Once again, Adler's art was really great, but you can't not help seeing the Walking Dead vibe in this book. It's incredibly strong in here. And I'll, of course, again, point it out at certain times. This was a really good story that definitely deserves to be in a trade. Unfortunately, it comes from an era that I don't think DC's really all that into trading at this point in time. So, there you have it. So if you can't find this book in back issue bins, well, you're probably not going to be able to find it unless you go through other other means. I don't even think it's on Comixology, so sad. But let's go ahead and look at specifics in the book. Let's go ahead and start out with the cover. Mm, Not quite as good as the Green Arrow cover this time out, but not necessarily bad either. I think Ollie looks great. He's holding holding his bow in the correct position with the string on the inside of his hand. Uh, he's shooting left-handed, but again, trick archer, he can do that. Um, Adler seems to draw Kyle's legs a little wrong. I'm not saying like, he's got Rob Liefeld problems with the feet, but if you look at Kyle on this first panel on the cover here, his feet look really, really extended. Kind of awkward, but... The rest of the artwork in the book is is superior to this. But, well, I'm still not complaining about the art, but if you look on 
page one, these bottom two panels, that's essentially Bald Nagin from the Walking Dead story. And if you move on over to page two, panel one, now it's Bald Rick. So obviously that's just me seeing things in Charlie Adler's art style that wouldn't necessarily appear for, what, nearly a decade after that? Interesting. Page four, now we finally seem to see Winnick writing some of the banter between Ollie and Kyle as more joking than spiteful. I'm glad that we've got to this. I am still kind of upset that it took this long to get to this. I think these two should realize that they have a sort of kinship as Green Arrow and Green Lantern and should be working together rather than bickering throughout each other. And that would be the one negative thing I'd probably take away from this storyline, that it took this long to get to this kind of playful banter. Pages 5 and 6, there's just a nice little reference here to see that Connor and Dinah are mopping things up on Earth. Plus, we also get a reference to DEO Agent Chase, which was part of the uh, series that came in the late 90s, early 2000s, about the character of Chase, who worked with the Department of Extra Normal Affairs, I think it's called. So, nice little Easter egg put in there. Page 8, we get what, uh, not really full-size Godzilla construct here, but a sort of moderately sized one. But it's neat because it takes out part of the uh, bridge with a tail whip, which I think would make Luke Jacanetti proud. And I kind of like the way Adler draws Kyle's constructs. They look distinctly different. I think he may ink them with a different color ink than the typical black ink that you'd use for most of the characters. So it's got a different sort of cartoony, unreal style, which I think works in the Green Lantern comic. It's it's a way to distinguish them from the actual uh, technically real, quote-unquote, holding it up to the microphone, surroundings in the book. Page 11, we get a great, great splash page of Green Lantern and Green Arrow on this. And, and Winnick does a really good job with some good banter between the heroes. They're sniping back and forth, but it doesn't seem at all mean-spirited. They've finally come together and are working as the typical Green Arrow, Green Lantern team. And I think everything on this page works. Dialogue, art, looks good. I'm not saying it's poster-worthy, but it's definitely a standout piece of art in the book. Page 13, panel 4. As I commented with the Godzilla uh, image earlier in the book, Adler seems to draw Kyle's constructs very cartoony, especially with all the Amazon warriors. Essentially, there's not much distinction in their faces. There's a little bit of them, but mostly they are just two circles placed on a female body. Basically, Adler's not really taking much time out to draw them as specifically normal-looking females because they are constructs, so they all have ridiculously round breasts, which I guess could be a neat thing, but it also gives it an otherworldly feel, which works as they're not essentially objects in the natural world of Green Lantern. They're constructs. Page 15, I said in the synopsis that Amonsur lassoed Kyle Rayner with something around his neck to debilitate him, and it really looks like he stole a bat line from Batman, because even the thing that's whipping around Kyle's neck to drag him down, you paint that thing black, and it looks like a a bat grapple of some sort. So... 
kind of interesting there. Moving on to page 17, Adler does a good job at depicting the brutality of Ammon beating and kicking Kyle. It's it's very disturbing, especially in this book, but it is also setting up what's going to come in later issues of The Walking Dead, where this will just be kind of this will be kind of, you know, day-to-day goings on in when Adler's drawing The Walking Dead, so interesting there. Moving on to page 21, where they're at the bar. Ollie looks really good. I think Adler has finally gotten his features down and give him a distinct enough look that he's not quite as simplistic as he was during the beginning of the book. But Kyle, especially in this last panel here, it's that, it's that shot that Adler will use a lot of times on Walking Dead, which is looking up from below a person up onto their face, sort of down a, angle camera view. And Kyle looks so much like Rick Grimes on this page that it's not even funny. But, you know, it's it's his art style. It's what he does, and you can complain about it or you can enjoy it. And I happen to enjoy it, but it is it is interesting to point out how similar these characters look like to the characters that will be appearing later on in The Walking Dead. But overall, that's all the notes I have. A really good story, a really good ending, nice artwork by Charlie Adler, an interesting choice, uh, very left field, I would say, for these type of books. But I think it worked out really well, uh, and by the end of the book, both Winnick, Rob, and Adler were firing in all cylinders and gave us a really good story and some really, really fun to look at art. Definitely go pick up these books if you can find them, even if they're not in the cheapy bins. If you're a Green Lantern or a Green Arrow fan, I think you will enjoy this story. But for just a minute, let's take a look at some of the ads in the book, see if there's anything new in here. I know we haven't done that in a couple of weeks, so let's go ahead and see what we've got. Starting with the front and side cover, we can advertisement for some gummy bears that are stealing the wheels off of a gummy car, I guess. It's for the Haribo gummy bears. Yeah, there you go. The gummy bears are, are car thieves or car wheel thieves. Got the same silly Starburst ad with the guy holding the defibrillator in his mouth. Uh, a Persian apple. Yeah, that doesn't work, kids. Got an advertisement for WarioWare, which on one side of the page, it has a bowl of, it looks like Chex Mix or something. Basically with about, oh, a cup and a half of sugar poured on it. Um, I don't know whether this is for a diabetes commercial, but the next page has something about the, uh, well, it has something about WarioWare, the Game Boy game, as well as an advertisement, uh, like three-quarter page advertisement for the JLA book, which is weird setup. After that, we get an advertisement for the 15th anniversary celebration of Mega Man and Base. Base? Is that a part of the Mega Man saga? I don't know. I guess it is. Mega Man on the Game Boy Advance. There you go. We've got the little trendy advertisement for OxyClean. Uh, some ways to uh, cover up zits. Uh, one of them is wearing a turtleneck, faking sick. You put a bandage over it, or you can use OxyClean. And obviously, if you're smart and hip, you'll use OxyClean to clean up those zits on your face. Oh boy, here's a great callback. It's the uh, sort of glass mosaic of tobacco is wacko if you're a teen. Uh, 
Haven't had that in a while. That's really good to see that back in the book. After that, we get a two-page splash of, what is this? Auto Modelista? What is this game? It's a PlayStation 2 game. It's a racing game. Auto Modelista? I've never heard of this. It doesn't look like any of that. Well, it looks like your typical driving game, your typical Gran Turismo type game. Eh, whatever. Uh, again, after that, you got to add for the Game Boy Advance version of Castlevania, Aria of Sorrow. Looks like they uh, pulled some characters from a kind of creepy anime show to uh, advertise this uh, Castlevania game. So that's a thing. After that, you've got an advertisement for Right, right Guard Extreme. And instead of having the power strip, which they used to have, now they have power caps, which are that much stronger in protecting you from perspiration odor, I guess. Uh, if you order Sargento cheese sticks and S- Sargento string cheese, you could uh, mail away to get your free Justice League hat, which is kind of neat. It's got the Justice League logo on a red baseball cap. Interesting there. Then you've got your Pirates of the Caribbean. I guess it's the first movie, Curse of the Black Pearl, Disney Interactive Game. Knowing how, well, it's by Bethesda Software Works, which is a decent company for putting out games, but the fact that it's a movie tie-in game and I haven't heard all that much about it being good or bad, I'm going to take it as it was probably bad and didn't do very well at all. Uh, after that, they've got an advertisement for some Paramount DVDs, including Harriet the Spy, Good Burger, what is this? Snow Day, Adam's Family Values, Clockstoppers, the two Brady Bunch movies, Grease, Grease 2, and Clueless. So if you can't go out at night because you have a zit and you look like, you know, Timmy Turner's mom from The Adventures of, or not Timmy Turner, you know, Jimmy Neutron's mom from The Adventures of Jimmy Neutron, then stay and watch these DVDs. You'll be entertained. Um... The back inside cover is for Kung Fu Chaos. I think we talked about this before. A bunch of Sonic the Hedgehog characters doing Kung Fu. And the back outside cover is, oh, what's his name? Bob Burnquist doing a skateboarding thing over the town from Poltergeist. Yeah, okay. Yeah, nothing really new in ads. Hopefully we'll be getting some later on the show. But that's it for the show, and that's it for the Judwinick run. Overall, I wouldn't have to say... It had some really high points. The uh, the Ion story, the power of Ion story was really great. The hate crime story was really good. And it had some low points. The uh, the issue that we had, like 162, with the reveal of the Guardian kid being the new Amazon warrior, as well as the Mataic, uh Magden storyline about them going to the... Jenny and Kyle going to the planet and fighting the Israeli-Palestinian war. But overall, I'm actually kind of impressed with Judd Winnick on the Greenland book. Would he? Would I consider him a better writer than Ron Mars? Probably not. But his storylines were at least engaging enough to keep me interested. We'll see how all that fares next time out as I get into the Ben Rabe run of Green Lantern and from what I've heard, I may be in for some trouble. But uh, regardless, 
I will still be covering it here every Friday for you lovely folks on another episode of Just One of the Guys. So hopefully you'll be back next time. Hopefully I won't be suffering. Until then, have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys podcast, and you, you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Incubus with their song Circles off the album Morning View. As always, if you'd like to buy the song or buy anything, I would suggest you go to Amazon.com. I don't know if you can buy everything at Amazon.com, but I'm pretty certain you'll be able to soon. Of course, if you do go buy something at Amazon.com, I would please ask that you go first to TwoTrueFreaks.com. At TwoTrueFreaks.com, look for the little banner, usually up on the upper left-hand corner of the homepage, and click on that. That'll take you to Amazon.com, where any purchase you make will shoot a small percentage of the purchase price back to the Two True Freaks website. And the great thing about it is, you don't see any extra taken out of your pocket. It's just a way that Amazon pays us for advertising for them. So whenever you're thinking about buying movies, games, DVDs, Blu-rays, entertainment of any sort, probably someday in the future, We'll all buy everything from Amazon.com. Make sure you use the link at 2 com.